had a bunch of guests with me on that that particular day and we went and we looked at its little pond and there were two ducks on the pond. I didn't even know if my bird was going to stoop ducks. She's never stooped ducks before. Uh, the week before that I flushed ducks underneath when she came over and she tracked them. She never stooped them before. Tian was with me. He, he just started his apprenticeship. And I put her up and she went out, got a nice height. I think she came over at 120, 130 meters. Sent the dogs in, flushed the ducks and she disappeared with a duck behind the damn wall. How's it going, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Toll Podcast, and now the second installment of this series that was recorded in South Africa. And without the efforts of the Cape Falconry Club to help kind of orchestrate and organize this whole thing, we wouldn't have been able to pull this off. So we're very thankful to them for the invitation to come to their Cape Falconry Club meet and get a chance to talk to all these awesome falconers and put this series together so thank you all very much for that and also a big thank you to the falconry heritage trust for sponsoring the travel expenses for this series as well without the funding to get over to these different places it would be very hard to be able to continue to do these international series for you all so we're very thankful to them as well and if you all aren't familiar with the falconry heritage trust then you should know that they are dedicated to conserving falconry's cultural heritage and they aim to link the international falconry community national archives and collections private collectors and academics to ensure that items and information related to the sport's global history are protected for future generations so if you want to find out more information about them or to possibly donate or be involved at all with them just head to falconryheritage.org so this episode was the first that was recorded at the cape falconry club meet we decided to go ahead and get this in late on the night that we arrived there and got settled in I wanted to go ahead and get this one recorded first with Andre because he's also the chairman of the Cape Falconry Club and is very familiar with the rules and regulations and how things work with falconry in the Western Cape area where he's from. And he also happens to be the one that initially reached out to us about doing this series in the first place. And without his help in organizing and orchestrating all of this, it probably wouldn't have happened. So. Very thankful to him for reaching out to us and and helping make all this stuff come to fruition. And it was good getting to know him also while I was there that week and a half and see his birds fly and, uh, you know, his dog work as well. So without talking about it much more, we'll go ahead and jump into this conversation that I had with Andre and uh, learn more about how falconry works in different parts of South Africa. So here we go. Thank you very much for having me and um, kind of being the catalyst for helping make this whole thing happen. It's been really fun so far, so I appreciate it. I'm glad you've, you've enjoyed the bit of time. I feel like I've neglected you a bit with the conference we had to have over the last three days. Um, but as I told you, the job of a chairman, you sometimes have to play all sides. <laughs> <laughs> very much so. Well, let's go ahead and do a quick cheers. We'll go ahead and... Yep, there we go. Awesome. Well, like I said, thank you. And um, 
What are you drinking there, by the way? What's the name of that again? It's a famous grouse whiskey, the Black Grouse. Black Grouse. Yeah. Hmm. Is that exclusive to around here, or is that just something that uh, you can get pretty much anywhere? No, here? it's something you can get pretty much anywhere, I reckon. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's a proper whiskey. It comes from Scotland, so you can call it whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually, the, the interesting story about Famous Grass is it's, it's how my mentor taught me how to drink whiskey when I was doing my apprenticeship. I really? Was, yeah. My first my first South African falconry field meet, I was barely legal to start drinking it. Had my birthday two weeks before, and he asked me, "Do you do you drink whiskey?" I said, "No." He said, "Well, I'm going to teach you how." <laughs> and it was on famous grass, so it has got very long falconry memories for me. Well, I mean, I guess it's good to have nice mentors that teach you the the ropes in all facets of things, and not just uh, not just falconry. <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I mean, we've we've had this conversation. I come out of a. a line of training and development so mentorship is very critical and for us in the the club as well we've over the last few years we've really shopped up our mentorship and taken a more active role in and how we develop the apprentices um and the proofs in the pudding i mean my appy's in the room next door he's flying a peregrine falcon after four years of doing falconry it took me close on 10 years before i got to that point um, obviously there was a gap in flying and that but still our club secretary, Fred, flew his first peregrine after almost 20 years of continuous flying. Um, and mentorship is what, what falconry comes out of. Um, it's it's the way we've done it. I mean, you've interviewed a lot of people across the world, but your more traditional falconry cultures, it's there's no, nothing book-based, nothing technology-based. It's a skill that's passed on from father to son or from a mentor to an apprentice. Um so that's that's the important part of falconry for me. It's the the development of our apprentices and not. And I know you know I've listened to a few of the podcasts and the guys speak about a hands off or a paper mentor and that. And yes, you can learn a lot on your own, but there's also a lot that you can learn by other people and that you can get to them quicker. Um, I'd be the first to say, Dian, my appy, my last appy, he's probably already a better falconer than I am. And that's that's what you have to aim for. Um, we we can't gatekeep the sport if we want to develop and grow the sport. We need to strive to make our apprentices better falconers than we are. Yeah, and I think that pretty much unanimously for the most part, you know, I mean, you've been listening to the podcast for a while, and I do recall, you know, some of those instances where we've I've had some of those conversations with people about the whole, you know, for whatever reason, fortunately there just wasn't very many people around and, you know, whatever to mentor certain people. And, and unfortunately some people have had to kind of go that paper sponsor route. And I think unanimously they'll all tell you that they struggled, you know, in some degree or another. And I mean, this is kind of hard enough to wrap your head around anyway, initially uh, without having extra, you know, <laughs> you know, just that, that extra bit of difficulty. Yep. And I think they would all agree, all those people that did have to have kind of that paper sponsor, you know, upbringing, so to speak, I think they would all pretty unanimously agree that they wish they would have had someone there guiding them the whole time. Yep. And it's, it's, it's something I understand because, you know, when I started my closest Falcon, I was the only 
falcon in my province that i knew of um my closest falcon and my mentor was a three-hour drive away and i didn't have a license so uh, he was very patient i phoned him two three times a week and we he chatted about an hour on the phone with me it's before social media before anything like that so it you know he he really talked me through my first falcons um my first kestrel he gave up an easter weekend with his family to come and help me trap a kestrel and then um talked me through my first training my first lanner um which was my second bird i flew and it it really paid dividends um but that having that someone with you is very important and then we moved down to cape town and I was sort of already an established falconer by that stage, and we moved into the club. And I mean, the, the Cape Club has always been a big club. Um, it's always been a very good club to be a part of. But at that stage, it it was a thing that the moment you reach your B grade, they sort of hands off and left you alone, um, expecting. And and I think that's where we realised as well. You know, we had a lot of falconers come up to B grade, and then either stay B-grade for an extremely long time or fall off the bus. Um, now, obviously, a sport like falconry, you are going to have some attrition. It's not, it's it's a very intense game. But with, with effective, you know, pairing people with the right hawks for their environments and for what they can fly and that, it, it actually helped us suddenly create a point where we've now got... I think we went from having six or seven A grades in the club. We now have six or seven guys that are provisionally A grade. Now that's not full A grade yet. It's still, as the name says, it's provisional. So they're still under a mentor, strict mentorship, but they're on their way there. Um, and that, that gives you a capacity in the club and the depth in the club that helps you with club management. It helps you with organizing things like this, the field meet, um, it helps you with organizing the conference that we've just had. You've got people that you can call on to help you arrange those things. But it also helps you with people that can contact new members and chat to them. And that's maybe not as intimidating or as scary as, a, as an, an experienced falconer. Yeah, and you know, I guess this will be a good time before we get too much more in this conversation. I mean... I know I kind of brushed on this with, you know, with you already and just kind of casual conversation in the, in the car and all that kind of stuff. And, and, um, one of the things I was really looking forward to discussing with everyone this week was finding out more about your system and just kind of, you know, finding out kind of how things were from, you know, just area to area and, um, you know, what people's experiences were kind of coming up in this system that you all have here, because as I found out, it definitely is different from our system in the U.S., and it's certainly different from, you know, what they have in other countries that I've been to so far. So if you don't mind, just go into, you know, uh, into more detail what you guys do and, and you know, how you guys go about you know, I, I guess, bringing people up in this mentoring system. So a, a bit of background on South African falconry. And um, it's, we we legalized falconry 
in the late 80s, early 90s. And a lot of the people you're going to chat to were involved in the legalization of falconry in South Africa. So, And we've, we're lucky you're going to have guests that helped in two of the provinces, so the Western Cape and the Free State. Um, when we legalized falconry, we, they, they identified the need for a structure. Um, because we have, we've got a ton of hawks that are suitable for falconry. Um, off the top of my head, we've got five short wings and basically three big or two big falcons and then a heap of kestrels and that and some eagles that can also, if you, that were inclined. <laughs> um, so they, they realize that there's a, there's a strong need for a structure that people need to follow to do this because you can't necessarily give something like an Avambo Sparrowhawk, which is a very highly strung hawk. It's about the size of your coops. Um, but highly strong, extreme nerves, you can't give that to an, a beginner. They'll kill the hawk. It's not good welfare concerns or good welfare practices. Um, so they they adopted the old Zimbabwe Falconers Club grading system, which means that there's four grades. There's D grade, which is your beginning grade, C grade, B grade, and then A grade. Um, somewhere along the line, they connected the title Master Falconer to A grade. <laughs> I... You know, I, I think if I chat to any any A grades well worth their own salt, they'll and it's the same as I've heard a few of the guys in the state say they don't they don't consider themselves to be masters. Um we're constantly learning, we're constantly developing and you know, I've learned tricks from some of my apprentices. Um so it's you know, you're constantly finding new ways of doing things. So there isn't a master. I think the the point where you realise that you know everything, you should quit the sport because you're wrong. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so with with us, we start them off D grades and our club doesn't have any birds. They have to spend a year apprenticeship um, following a mentor, coming out to field meets, meeting the guys and that. Then they write a, an exam. It's an internal exam. It's not a state exam like you have. So we've got an examiner that does the exam. It's part oral, part written. Um, depending on the person, you know, you've got – if it's someone with a learning disability who doesn't feel comfortable with writing or it's not necessarily English as their first language, we then do an oral exam, um, which is also suitable. Pass rate is 85%, so it's nice and high. And then they get their first bird. Now, traditionally, the first bird would be a kestrel or an African goshawk. Um, you fly that bird for a season or two seasons until your grading committee and the club deems that you are suitably qualified to move on to B grade. This is done with the the input from your, your mentor. What we have realized is um, a lot of people don't, are not necessarily suited to flying one of those two species. They, where they live or what they do isn't suited. Um, it was something I ran into when I moved down to the Cape is that I was still a C grade. So in my home province where I came from, I could fly a lander falcon at sea grade. It was a sea grade bird. It was suited to the style of falconry I enjoyed. I had to come down here and fly an Afgos, which was fun. But for me, flying a short wing, I like seeing other people fly them because the watching a short wing fly for an hour is about enough for to last me a year. <laughs> um, and we've got an apprentice now who lives on a farm and it's miles and miles of open space. There's nowhere where you can effectively hunt a short wing, which means you give him a short wing, it's just going to frustrate him and make him quit the sport. 
So we've we've changed that. We said there's a few birds that are suitable for for sea grades. We will even consider giving a sea grade a second at Harrisok, one that knows how to hunt because they still, you know, the the print they still learn something from it. Um, we've actually had a we've seen a lot of value in secondhand birds in the club, but the so once you go from sea grade on the bird and our current on new grading system you know you, you go from c grade with the motivation from your mentor you have to fly through the season with various senior falconers you've got a logbook where they write in comments they give you feedback and we see if you've improved on the feedback that was given and then at the end of the year we'll say all right you can go on to provisional b but you have to come to with us with a reason and a plan i mean if you're already flying a lander falcon um and you just want to grade to B to grade to B, yeah, we'll we'll consider it if you flew it well, but we don't just give the gradings out. Um, it's obviously we we're entrusted by our conservation authorities to be self policing in that regard, so they take our word for it as well. Um, it's no falcon in the province can practice falconry without the written sign off by the club. So we have to make sure that our standards are at an appropriate um, level as well. Then going on to B grade, you can fly most of the bird species. Um, the only thing that we've excluded are hybrids. Although that's the jury's still out on that one. I personally feel I've flew, I've trained my first hybrid this year. <laughs> and I personally feel that he's been the easiest to train bird that I've ever had. Uh, He's a natural mounter. He naturally started hunting. His two sisters were not as easy. They were a bit of a handstand, but tessels generally are easier. Um, you know, our, our found one of our founders, Edmund, actually believes that the best bird to start anyone on falconry with is a tessel peregrine. And I, I'm inclined to agree with him because they're very forgiving. They're very easy to work with, but they are birds that really do perform. Um, so we hybrids or or not and what we don't want is we don't want because what happened in the past is people would chase an a grade they would chase the, the the status and they would rush through a bunch of birds and what safa did was they implemented a system that made you fly more birds before you got a grade but that also frustrated people because now it, it became a lattice it was like playing snakes and ladders go up here fly this then fly that then fly that i've flown two black spars um one i've flown properly the other one after sort of just before free flying i took a long hard look at myself and i thought well i'm already not enjoying the training <laughs> and she was a she was a exceptional bird um it was just that i wasn't waking up with that excitement to train her so i passed on to someone and, and he did very well with her but so why force me to fly a black sport to become a grade if it's not my style of falconry that i enjoy um and it's it's the same we we used to have the rule that to become a grade you have to have a trained pointing dog now a pointing dogs a 15-year commitment um and what happened was that people would go out buy any pointer and then just half train it and you come to a field meet like this and there's no trained dogs. And we had it at this venue where we're sitting now. Um, and I think it was 2014-15 where dogs caused us to be banned from this venue for a few years. It cost me a lot of bleeding and, uh, and and begging to get the venue back for the field meet. And the guys had to promise to get their dogs on. So 
you know, dogs, it's a critical part of falconry, but it's not an essential part necessarily. Um, I think you people that are dog people can have dogs, but I don't think we should force people to have them because it's also, again, not good animal welfare. Um, and for us, the welfare is an important thing. We actually, the South African Falconers Association has applied to be registered as a welfare organization. Um, at the CFC level, all our members were kindly asked, um, infer what you want from that, to complete the IAF welfare questionnaire and exam so that we're all technically welfare certified by the IAF in the club. Um, and this just helps us in the current environment to it, it gives us a bit more bite against animal rights and that because we have got problems. Um, we've gone through a very tough three years in, in the club with falconry almost being delegalized or made illegal and we nearly lost the sport. So we have to bet where, where we can and, and, and just make sure that we keep the sport legal and compliant. Well, on each of those grades and as you're working your way up, are you only allowed to have one bird at a time as you're doing that then? We're actually encouraged um, to take, rather take birds from the wild tech. We've got on most of our birds a very generous wild tech. I mean, we're allowed to take 10 landers out of the wild. We're a club of 19 people. We're never going to reach the 10. But it does help if you get a dud lander. <laughs> <laughs> They're not as 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 um, common as you'd think. Actually, most landers tend to be good, especially if you trap them late enough. Um, around April, early May, they seem to have the 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 bad ones died <laughs> you know survival of the fittest um the idea is fly a bird for until you've you're ready for a new challenge and then release it and trap a new one um guys like me that fly exotic birds we've got an exotic policy that they need to comply with because you can't release these birds we can't just have them in a cage um we under our permitting conditions by the Conservation Authority, if your bird's not being flown, that bird must be taken away from you. And we did this last year. We took two hybrids away from a guy that didn't fly them. Um, he luckily surrendered them. He, he also knew he wasn't doing them justice, and he surrendered them, which is the mature thing to do. But if it comes to the point where he's not flying them and they don't want to surrender them, we can actually call in Nature Conservation to confiscate them. All birds belong to the club, regardless if I paid for my birds, they still belong to the club. And without the club's um, say, so I can, I can um, not fly them. And it's it's an important thing where we need to. We're still getting used to it, but our clubs are not social clubs. We are regulatory bodies, so we need to ensure that people stick to the rules and that. Um, so if if someone decides to fly a Harris at a B grade level, he's only allowed to fly one bird. That's the bird he has to fly until that bird either dies or if he finds someone that will take it over that's approved by the club to take it over and fly it. Yeah, that's um, as we were talking the other night in the car, that's one of the big differences that, I mean, one of the, I guess, many big differences that I was kind of surprised by is that you know, the way you guys have your clubs and the way they're structured and how they kind of fulfill their role and purpose, you know, I was kind of very surprised to hear about how everything kind of has to go through the club, which then that club goes through, you know, the South African, you know, Falconry Association and, and um, you know, the club is kind of like 
you know, everything kind of has to go through it. Whereas, you know, in the States, of course, you know, we form clubs for, you know, advocacy purposes and just to, you know, have a, a relationship with our, you know, state governments yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But we wouldn't, yeah, I mean, everything else that we do is still as an individual though, you know, so yeah, I mean, I, like I said, that was one of the shocking things that, that I, that I found out about that. It was very interesting. It, it does help us to a degree to control bad elements. Um, unfortunately, every sport you have bad elements and people that can give you a, a, a bad name. In the current climate across the world with with um, the way the animal rightists are crawling in everywhere and taking in everywhere, it it does become, you, you need to have control. We we try and not over-regulate our members. Um, I know, you know, if you chat to a falconer from outside the province, they call our rules and regulations that we we have to comply to from Cape Nature's side. They call it draconian and and that, and yes, it is extremely strict and it's it's a lot of work to, to try and comply with it. But at this stage, we, we go under the motto, comply and fly. Um, I think it's a matter of time between or regulate before the the nature conservation authorities realize they don't really have the manpower to to um, monitor the amount of paperwork that they would like us to submit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what we do now is we just submit all the paperwork as is needed, and that means that a a club permit renewal application consists of per member three permit or three application documents, um, two inspection documents, and then a hunting report that logs every flight and a hunting report summary that then logs every kill in a different document. So it's five <laughs> documents per falconer. So it's 150 documents for the club or between the two Western Cape clubs that need to be worked through. At some point, they're going to realize they don't really have the capacity. <laughs> um, but you know how, how some conservation authorities or um, government authorities are is they sometimes just go for the low hanging fruit the ones that are easy to 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 monitor and this comes in where our our partnership as a as a club with um, other strategic hunting and conservation bodies is very important we're not an island we're only 30 people in the whole province that does it if we get isolated we're done so we need the support of the bigger hunting organizations and that um to do it and it's a it's an ongoing fight within the south african falconry association that should we be a member um for us for the western cape we will be a member regardless if SAFA is or not it's it, we've been through this fight a lot of the other provinces haven't been through this fight yet but what happens in one province spills over into the others and it will come their way I think you spoke to Richard, and I hope he alluded to it, that they're also starting to prepare their system so that if something like this happens, they are prepared already. So at least we've, you know, the, all, my last three years of suffering has, um, <laughs> has, has hopefully prepared some of the other guys for what's coming and made it a bit quicker. Well, as we kind of talked about amongst ourselves also in the last couple of days, I mean, unfortunately, somebody has to do the work. And... Uh, you know, unfortunately, somebody in this instance had to be you. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, the other thing, too, that if you don't mind touching on also, as far as the role of the club and, you know, like, 
the, the falconers for the most part in the states you know when they go to take their wild trap bird you know they you know sometimes we will help each other out with that and things but for the most part each individual falconer you know traps their own bird and stuff one of the other functions of the club that i thought was interesting as well is that you know the club whoever is assigned in the clubs is is who ends up trapping the birds for for all the members yeah and so yeah, describe that a little bit so we we it, it used to work the same if you're above b grade you can go and trap your own bird um i i'm not sure why they changed the rules we're still trying to find out but now the club is issued with, uh, so we've got an annual wild take quota, an amount of birds we can take out of the wild. Um, this is negotiated each year. For the last year, it was four, for the Cape Club, it was four, two peregrines, um, five laners, five black sparrowhawks, two red-breasted sparrowhawks, and two African goshawks. And then the other club had about the same. We split the quota halfway. Um you then apply for the permit for all of the birds to trap them between when the permit is issued. So our permit is issued on the 2nd of December every year to the 30 or the 1st of the December the following year. But you you then identify a few A-grade falconers that have got experience in trapping and they can be assisted by B-grade falconers that are learning how to trap. Um, so generally what we'll do then is we'll list the the B grades in that. And that means that if an apprentice a C grade comes with when trapping a hawk, he's not allowed to handle the hawk in or around the trap. He must see and learn how to do it. Um, and in a way, it's understandable, you know, you, you prevent injuries or mishandling of hawks around the traps and that um, we have to have two people present when trapping because we need landowner permission that this is a, a policing thing from them that they want to make sure that the bird is trapped where we said it was trapped um, again i don't quite understand why the suspicion but it is there um, so we we do comply with that um, but luckily you know last year when we did we applied for the trapping permit we had to submit all our landowner permissions where we wanted to trap birds when we applied for the permit <laughs> which means that you're applying in November for trapping a lander falcon in February and you on a farm and you don't know if there's going to be a lander falcon there. So we, we did renegotiate that to the point where now we just need to submit the landowner permission before we go trap. Um, and that I can do if I submit it now and we trap the lander in an hour's time, they're happy. As long as I've got the email proof to say I submitted it and we trap the lander. I submitted it at eight, we trapped the land at nine. They're happy. Um they they unfortunately do force us to microchip our birds, which we do not agree with. It is against South African and the IAF's best practice guidelines. Um we are fighting that, but unfortunately at this stage it is something we have to comply with to keep on flying. So I mean, like I said, it, we are in a difficult time at the moment. Um but we are we are fighting it and we are talking to them and negotiating with them as well. Um, the the pity was that their engagement from their side, and this is again comes down to an internal capacity thing with them, has been very difficult. Um, I mean, this conference we had over the last three days was a, a, a critical thing for them to attend, and they just couldn't show. So it's life. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, part of the reason why I wanted to have this conversation and to kind of have this experience 
you know, over this, this next week and make this happen. Of course, for all the selfish reasons, I mean, who wouldn't want to, you know, come check all this neat stuff out. But, um, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's never a bad thing for all of the countries, all the members of all the different countries who listen to this podcast, you know, to really kind of be reminded that, you know, there are some people that actually do have to possibly jump through more hoops than, (laughs) than others. And, um, you know, if you really want things to continue to, um, you know, kind of go the way they have been, and if they're, if if people want this to continue to be a thing that they can do, then there are sometimes certain sacrifices and also a lot of work that kind of has to go into that, and you, know, you can't just take for granted that it's just going to continue to be around. So, you know, especially talking to you over the past few days and getting to know you and just hearing about some of the things that you've had, you know, to do and and your fellow club members and stuff, it's been really enlightening. So, you know, as far as, um, you know, the rest of the, the different elements of like the role of the clubs though, and things like that, is there anything else that is kind of noteworthy to kind of bring up. Yeah, I think just to add to that, we as Falconers, and that's across the world, we need to we we tend to get complacent. Um, if things go well, we leave it as is, and we shouldn't. Complacency is a killer, and that's that's what happened. It that's what got us into our current position. Is we got complacent and we got blindsided. Um, it's you you constantly need to be and and this regardless irregardless of where you are you constantly need to be aware of what's happening in your in your local conservation bodies um which direction are the policy policy going in that yes it's boring yes it's it's not the most exciting thing but you you can be blindsided very quickly i mean today at the conference we had the the shadow minister from the opposition the largest opposition party in the country at the conference coming to do the closing remarks and he's the shadow minister of conservation. So he essentially serves on a second cabinet, um, the opposition's cabinet, and they look into the decisions that's made at a national level. And he was very excited about the new conservation white paper that they published, which is will be the, the backbone of the policies and guidelines going forward for all conservation-related activities in the country. Unfortunately, the other people who are very excited about the white paper is your animal rightists. And the moment they get excited animal, they get excited about something, you need to know that there's problems there. Um, and we've actually been investigating and querying this white paper and stalling the white paper for the last six, seven months. Um, because the elements in there will take away a lot of the facets of falconry that we require. We won't be allowed to tear the hawks. We won't be allowed to um, hunt them. We won't be allowed to. There's there's a lot of things that we won't be allowed to do that's essential to falconry. We won't be allowed to trap birds or use live bait to trap them, um, which which under our current per- permit conditions we're allowed to use a vulture to in a docaza. So, you know, how do you then continue to do falconry? And... As falconers across the country, we're 113 members of the South African Falconry Association. We don't have the funds to fight these things. 
And that's again where it comes in being a partners with other conservation body, bodies and other hunters that do have this, the funds to do it. I mean, your 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 bigger hunting, your wing shooters and that, they've got a lot more money than we have. So they can fight these fights for us, but we then need to partake in the conversation with it. So that's that's my big thing is don't be complacent, stay up to date. And if you have a club, I mean, I don't really care if you get along with the people and or not, um, but contribute because it's they they're fighting it for you. Um, you know, it's it's not a popular th thing to say, but <laughs> they're, they're fighting for you. It is fact. It is fact. And you know, like I said, it's it's one of those things I don't think can be said enough. And you know, there's there's lots of those little things that have been mentioned before on this on this podcast, and and it, you know by now it probably sounds cliche to some people, but the reality is is that yes, somebody has to be the voice and do the work, and yeah, I mean it's not exactly entirely fair, you know, that the same couple of people are the ones that are always doing it either, because eventually those people. <laughs> aren't going to be able to do it anymore. It's yeah. just inevitable one way or the other. But, well, I mean, thank you for elaborating on that. I, I hope people, as they listen to this series, aren't going to get tired of kind of hearing about some of these details. I personally find it all fascinating because it's so different, you know, in a lot of ways to what we do. And it's another example of something that, you know, makes sense and, and can work, you know, that other people have adopted. And I, I think everybody can agree that there's not probably ever going to be such a thing as a perfect system. But, you know, it's amazing to see how these different places have kind of figured out what works for them. And also hear about how they've tried to make changes when it hasn't worked for them, you know, so. But, um, Real quick then, I mean, so we've kind of mentioned, you know, touched briefly on the, the trapping aspect of things. Let's kind of shift a little bit. And so, I mean, let's kind of discuss some of the different species that you all have available and how you guys go about obtaining some of these. Because, like, you know, I'm still admittedly very ignorant, you know, to, you know, that's part of the reason why I love going all these different places and seeing all these different things and talking to all these different people is because, you know, I really don't know how a lot of stuff works in a lot of these areas. So enlighten me a little bit then on, you know, which of these species you have to go about trapping in certain ways and, um, you know, just kind of uh, talk about that for a little bit. So again, the unfortunate thing with our new regulations in our province is that we are not allowed to take any IS birds anymore, um, which I think is a, it's a crying shame because it has, it has really curtailed the amount of birds we can fly. Um, something like a black sparrow hawk as a passage, you know, you get nice ones, as with all things, as with coopers, you get a nice passage, but they're few and far between. Um, the ideal thing, and we, we actually have some of the members here, um, Tony Cross, and you'll chat to him later this week, I hope. The, him and his father, the German falconers, they came over from Germany and came and practiced here, and they probably breed the best Harris hawks I've ever seen fly. But they pioneered a method of socially raising black sparrow hawk chicks, imprinting them and hacking and tame hacking them. And it's the most bomb proof black sparrow hawks I've ever seen. Um, 
you know, you can introduce new dogs, you can run around, you can come up to, anyone can come up to them on a kill. And, you know, from a welfare perspective, you want the bird to be at ease in falconry. And a lot of black sparrow hawks just aren't. Um, we, I know a lot of, a lot of passages that end up after being trapped, they, they are so nervous, they are so stressed. Even my, my late eyes, my, my, mus my first musket was like that. He just couldn't settle down into falconry and you actually feel bad for flying the bird because you feel that you're doing it a disservice because it's not happy. You have to keep it hooded for long periods of time and that just to keep it semi-relaxed and workable. Um, and I think that's the reason we don't see many black spars being flown in our province at the moment, whereas in other provinces, they go, they take ISs, they imprint them, and they've got, they fly them. Um, a passage black spar is really a specialist thing, and if, again, if one of my club members applies for one, I, you know, we'd really have to look hard at the application and at the falconer, and they need to give us a, a set out plan for how they're going to mitigate the risks, how they're going to plan to to do it um the other thing is with our peregrine falcons again we we're fortunate we're allowed to trap passage peregrines um our peregrines we have here though is the smallest of the peregrines it's falco peregrinus minor um pigeon specialists i mean you saw the flight we had the, of the wild one yesterday that's flight of the day the other day that was the best <laughs> flight of the, it's actually it's probably the best flight of the week <laughs> um and we've we've found in our club that one in six passage peregrines will take duck. Now around where I live and around where most of my members live, duck is the main quarry. So going through six peregrines before you find one that'll take duck, um, when you're trapping passages, and when you're only allowed to trap two out of the wild in the club, for the club is not feasible. So a lot of us fly exotic peregrines. I fly Black Shaheen Scottish Cross. Um, we've got a few guys that are flying sort of mixes between Peels and Autumn and Scottish. We, we tend to like putting the Scottish in because it makes them a bit nicer, <laughs> especially <laughs> the Peels. The Peels gives just gives the right amount of spice. It's kind of ironic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. Um, but again, it's a thing that, you know, when we, when, when we started falconry and when I started falconry, there were a lot of guys flying African peregrines on ducks, but these were captive bred African miners. So these were IS birds that were either trained as ISs or hacked and they were catching ducks. So it, it must be something in the development of the passage birds that makes them not want to do duck. Um, and Zora, my, my old, my minor, my minor that I flew, um, and she's she's a bit of the club bicycle at the moment. We give it to falconers that need a bit of motivation and they need a bit of, you know, they're good falconers, they're experienced, but they don't really have the necessary field craft. We give it to them because she teaches them the field craft. Um, I think her best season so f in the last two years, she did 60 or 70 ducks in one season. She's just, and she goes, she's small, 660 grams. She goes and takes the biggest straight yellow bull out of the flock. Um, and I think we weighed when it was 1.4 kgs. And by the time it hits the ground, it's dead. Um, but she was also an IS. So, you know, it's it's easier to get the ISs to take duck, but we haven't got access to them. And I can't buy one from a breeding project because our con conservation authority reckons that our peregrines we have around here are, uh, don't move around much. 
and therefore bringing in exotic African peregrine falcons from other provinces that are captive bred will dilute the gene pool. The logic again, don't understand because <laughs> I brought in a black Shaheen Scottish cross. Um, so anyway, <laughs> so most of our people go about um, trapping passages. I know over the last few years, we've had a lot of our apprentices trap really early passage landers. They'll trap them end of Jan, end of Feb. And it's a 50-50 on those birds if they're going to make it or not as a, as a good falconry bird. They, they're excellent birds around the house. <laughs> uh, they fly nice and in your pocket. They're lovely to have around. We, I always prefer trapping lanners around Easter weekend, so around April, because by then it's, um, it's, become, it's becoming winter and the, the good ones are left. Um, of course, peregrines you want to trap earlier. If you trap a passage peregrine end of Jan or Feb, because then it's like a late hack tires. Um, you can do more. The, the true passage peregrines with us, if you trap them April, early May, it's a bird that you, you need to plan your time around them because at 2 o'clock they start baiting and they don't stop. Um, so you need to be home at 2 o'clock to hood them. You need to you need to really keep an eye on them. These things are pigeon specialists and up until June down here we've got flocks of pigeons that move around. Um, June the wheat gets too high, the pigeons all move away, they move into the dairies and that then it's not as much of a problem anymore. But your first two weeks of free flying is <laughs> seat of your pants stuff. Um, Avambo Sparrowhawks, we've got an article in our new Muse Views from a guy in, in Gauteng that imprinted them. Lovely birds. Um, it's it's the first falcon, falconry bird that I ever found a nest of and watched and they were they're awesome little sparrowhawks. Red-breasted sparrowhawks, there's two being flown at the meet now. Um, both are rehab birds, so both came in with slight concussions, both very late passages. They don't need the falconers. Um, the one, I know the falconer last year ended up, she was a bit still iffy at that stage on a release, although flying well, but he really wanted to fly for a second season. Um, and she would make him walk five kilometers in a day just, self-hunting um, and he'd find on a kill five six kilometers on so he ended up training her like the pakistanis do to dart so he would hold her and actually throw her at quarry which served two purposes the first one was that she she was hyper focused on small birds um so he could start flying quail with her like that and she ended up catching a few quail like that but the other ones that he could control the slips um, I know there's another one being flown now at the moment. Um, that bird I think is going to get released end of next week because they tracked her for five hours yesterday. <laughs> and <laughs> she she just doesn't need them. Mm -hmm. um, Tian, my appy, flew an early passage that he trapped around the nest and she did very well. Um, but was a bit nervous, but all these birds are. I don't know what he does to them. He scares them. Um, <laughs> they're all in good condition but she was a bit nervous uh, so you couldn't really see her fly African goshawks are an excellent bird they are, they've got the personality of a lander falcon they're nice and chill but they've got a turn of speed and they're very very good beginner hawks um, there are some people that start flying them like some people start flying harasses and they never fly anything else and they're versatile you can take them for a walk you can um and hunt small birds with them. You can fly them out of cars at starlings and the like. They, they're super versatile and they'll adapt to anything. 
Um, so they're, they're very nice birds. And then, of course, the black spots. <laughs> black spots is probably the reason a lot of people are interested in South African falconry. They're amazing birds. Um, but you, you want to have them socially imprinted. Um, not a full imprint. I've been... I've had one use my face as a tap dance um, platform. <laughs> a full imprint. The normal problem is they don't kill, they get aggro at you. You do, however, have to hunt them every day in their first season. If you don't, they get frustrated and they just trash themselves. It's a their husbandry nightmare. Um, and obviously you need to check dogs and things around them. Um, I personally wonder sometimes, I haven't seen northern goshawks fly. Um but I sometimes wonder if a northern goshawk, and we've had a few in the club in the past, is not worth the effort compared to a black spar that they're not as highly strung as the black spars are. Um, but that, yeah, unfortunately we're not going to see at the meet because there isn't one here. Yeah, yeah I was a little bummed to hear that. Yeah, I was just like, so was I. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, well, you know, I was going to get to see all these different things and then they're like okay well the, you know half the species that you're wanting to see probably aren't going to be here and i was like okay well that's whatever <laughs> yeah but, i think i think what you will enjoy is um scotty taking out his his lanaret yeah. mm -hmm. yes that bird's cooking and he's he's one of our sort of you know one of those natural falconers um he started the little african goshawk and he was taking everything from little songbirds through to duck with that african goshawk it was just she was a machine we Got him a Lana the next season, and he was taking duck with her. Um, now, Lana's taking duck is almost unheard of. There's been probably five Lana falcons in the country's history that's taken duck. Um, and then he flew a Harris last year because he was studying and he didn't have a lot of time. Um, did well with it. It's being used for abatement now, so that's how he got past that thing. Um, it's been passed on to an abatement guy <laughs> that's got a few contracts. And this year he wanted to do a lana at low pitch, 50 to 100 meters on whatever pops out in front of him. Um, and this little bird is cooking. It's going up, it keeps position above him and then chases whatever he puts up. And he's taking multiples, he's flying snipe with it. Um, so it's really, I'm, I'm very keen to see at this meet what that bird will do with grey wing. Franklin, um, I think it'll be a very, very good combination. And then, of course, if we can get the opportunity a bit late in the year to put that bird on sand grass, it will also be interesting to see what he does. Cool. Well, and and kind of going back to the original, you know, question as far as you know what kind of tactics or what kind of you know um, plan that you guys do try you know use to try and trap these birds. I mean, do you mainly use the dogazas for your falcons, you know, like traditionally, or are we you... we actually mainly use dogazas for most of the birds. Really? Um, yeah, they they work well. We because we don't really have diurnal rabbits. Most of our falconry birds are bird hunters. Um, your African goshawks will do fur and feather, but the fur is mice. So yeah, you can put a hamster in a bolchatry and catch a catch an afcos but then you have to consider do you really want an afcos that catches rats <laughs> uh, well they probably all do a certain yeah extent, no though, they right? all do yeah, no, they all do um it's it's the same with the lanners you know when you when you trap a lanner you, you give a close look you look at the feet if it's got bite marks on it you look at the vent if it's if it's a dirty vent you let it go trap another one um because if you trap and let go it, it doesn't count as one of the quotas the moment you take it home um 
but mainly Dogazas. And we're lucky that we've got a few people in the club that can tie. It's it's an apprentice thing anyway. You want to trap a bird, you have to tie your own Dogaza. Um, we'll decide if we're going to use it because <laughs> some of them are not usable. But at least, you know, the effort's been put in. Right. Um, I'm personally useless at tying one, but... <laughs> Luckily, my appy is not. Uh, he ties he ties he ties them well enough that he can sell them, so that helps. Um, so we use mainly dogazas and then bolcher trees. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think overall that's that's a pretty good general overview about just some of the the background and you know just kind of how things are at least here in you know, in, in the, you know, kind of the, the Western, you know, the Cape area and all that kind of stuff. But um, I guess we could go ahead and kind of shift again to, you know, talking more about, you know, how you got into all this and, you know, kind of what your, your personal story is, I guess. Well, you know, falconers are probably born and not really made. Um, I've, I've always wanted to do it. I think my my mom says one of her earliest memories of me is me walking around with my dad's leather army glove, holding it in front of me with nothing on it. And she asked and I said, no, I'm walking around with my hawk. Um, <clears throat> so falconry and dogs have been a big part of my life. Um, when I was about 16, we came down to the Cape for a holiday and we went to one of the bird parks and there were a few raptors in the cage and it sort of just ignited a fire. Um, I think it also helped... I was super into athletics then. I know it doesn't look like it now, but <laughs> <laughs> I was I was super into athletics then and I just um pulled tore an ankle ligament ice skating on the holiday. So I was not really mobile. My whole planned athletic season was out the window. And so I had time on my hands to think. Um and we drove back. My grandfather's got a farm in the Karoo and on the way back we saw a few landers and things. So when we got back to my hometown at this stage, I spoke to a guy who does research on owls and asked him if he doesn't know any falconers because I'd really like to get into it. I didn't know if it was legal. It was, you know, still dial-up modems and internet was expensive, so didn't really have access. Um, and he said, yeah, he knows a few people and he'll make a few calls, and that was it. And two weeks later... I get a call or the phone rings out of the blue. It's still a landline. Um, rings out of the blue and this guy says it's Dirk Verwurt and he's a falconer and he hears, hears that I wanted to do falconry. And so we start chatting and he sort of tells me what I need to do and that. And from then I pestered him for the next year over the phone, two hours, <laughs> twice a week. <laughs> um, pestered some of the other guys from the club, but he was the most receptive one. And then it got to the point I did my exam. Um, so I was in approved grading, got my permits and everything in hand. And he came down and we tried my first kestrel. Um, flew my first kestrel, went in him and his friend Mark did my grading. Um, I was lure flying it completely wrong. I, I had read Frank Beebe's book and looked at the pictures and I thought I was doing the lure flying thing right. I wasn't. I was swinging it around my head like a lasso. <laughs> Luckily, didn't hit the falcon. So they showed me how to do that right. But they were happy. They said, now I can move on to something more serious to hunt with. Um, I did trap a pale chanting goshawk later that year. It never calmed down. And for three weeks, I tried waking it. Everything, it just wouldn't calm down. I ended up just 
cutting the jesses and letting it go and then waited around for a lana so until i got one flew the lana for a bit and that was a that was a revelation um initially flew a late afternoons and she wouldn't go up i didn't have the telemetry at the time didn't have the money <laughs> um and i you know it was a case of if i lose a that's a bell and it's fine <laughs> so my my phone my mentor one night and i said look my bird's not going up he says well why don't you try flying it tomorrow in the middle of the, in in the middle of the day so i put in a first thermal and i i nearly had a heart attack <laughs> <laughs> this bird just specked out um but that that hooked me and i had a young gsp at the time so we used to fly these hedgerows between planted wheat uh, mealy fields cornfields and you get the Swainson Franklin in there so the dog wasn't really he wasn't that well trained he was I, my first dog I didn't really know what I was doing but he was popping out Franklin and the the, the falcon was stooping there um, I did lose her because he popped out a few sparrows and she grabbed one hooked a thermal ate it on the way up and then <laughs> trapped her back three days later on the same place where I initially trapped her which was a sunflower field that was busy coming down she was there with five other landers and then promptly lost her again a week later <laughs> <laughs> such is life so we yeah. moved we moved down and I got my FCOS here and got my grading um, with the FCOS my grading flight was quite interesting we were flying a flay system and the Afcos had just gone off after a bunch of stallings, if I remember right. And she came back and sat in a small tree in front of us. So I was walking towards her to get her out of the tree, and the yellow bull duck pops up at my feet, and this bird just came in and nailed it. First duck I ever caught with a bird. Now, my mentor was a duck hawker, so it was quite a big thing for me. And I still remember the guy grading me. He just went, oh, shit, she's got it. <laughs> um so needless to say that got me my b grading very quickly <laughs> and that's it's a flight that still sticks in my mind so very nice yeah. nice well i mean as far as you know kind of your personal progression then since you kind of got into this i know you you were in it for a little bit and then kind of had to do what some falconers have to do and kind of go on hiatus for a little bit because of like life circumstances and things like that but um you know what what did some of those different lessons early lessons teach you and then that kind of that gap where you you know you kind of had to stop and and then you know taking it back up again i mean what are some of the things like you know how did that kind of affect you and and how do you think that you do things differently now as opposed to to then you know when you're 21 22 23 you you really think you know a lot um i I wish I was still as smart as I was then. Um, and I think that along with not a firm mentorship structure in the club, I think if I carried on the way I was carrying on, I, I wouldn't have lost it in falconry. But um, for certain, probably wouldn't have progressed to the standard that we do it now. Um, I think the the seven years I've spent working in training and development has taught me the importance of mentorship so when when i eventually got ready and i i actually didn't get back into falconry by choice um my wife she was my girlfriend then at the time and i i wanted to get a dog again and i was set on a gsp because it's what i've always had she likes dogs with beards so i tracked down a breeder with uh with wire head pointers and but hunting proper hunting dogs and um, my mentor actually has one as well um, he's got one of my dog's older brothers so it, it worked out quite well got the dog and then when the dog was about a year old it was time to start working him and 
I didn't have any farms and that. So I made contact with the falconers again. Um, and that slowly eased me back into it and lit the fire. I, I changed jobs as well, so I had a bit more time at home. But the big thing was there that I realized the value of of flying with other people and listening to the advice of other people. Um, now, the, the trap is here for all falconers. Is you can go and you can listen to 20 different falconers. It's not going to help you. But <laughs> you need to go out with guys and see and find people that fly in the style that you want to fly and you stick on them like a tick on a dog in summer. Um, that's that's how you learn. Um, and I think that's that's what's made my falconry a lot better. Um, it's it certainly made me progress to the point where I think I'm I'm a bit more intuitive than I used to be on falconry. Um, I've had both my birds. I've had to, to think outside the box quite quite hard um, with regards to their training and getting them to fly the way I want them to fly. The females, some days she does it, some days she doesn't. She's she's very hot and cold. The little tiersels getting the the the, the hybrid, um, but I mean it's. I actually enjoy both of them. So it's the, but the big thing there was coming back in and, you know, not being that arrogant know it all, but sort of saying, listen, I don't know anything. I need help. That was the, the big thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it kind of can be hard sometimes to reach a, a certain degree of maturity, I guess, when it comes to all this stuff and, and also, eventually kind of get focused and realized and realize kind of that you need to sometimes pare things back a little bit and tone it down some and um you know just kind of go back to kind of i don't know whatever kind of degree of normalcy we can find you know <laughs> because yeah i mean I, I i know you know personally i fell into that trap of wanting to try a lot of different things early on and in retrospect what i probably should have done was just you know, try a couple of things that were, you know, more realistic at the time and then find something that was a lot more realistic and just stick with it for a while. And, you know, and just, you, you just, you don't know sometimes until later, yeah, <laughs> you know, hindsight's twenty twenty for but, sure. Um, I think you, you know, we all go into falconry and we've, we've got this, this thing at our core of which, what we actually enjoy. And I think sometimes going back to what you enjoy, even if it's not the most high-profile type of flying, who cares? Falconry is a hobby. I, I know it's a lifestyle. I know it's this and that. And I know there's a lot of people that will probably be angry at me now. But at the end of the day, you're doing it to enjoy it. You're not doing it for for anyone else. So do the falconry that you enjoy. Um, and I mean... The, the flights we had yesterday morning was a classic example of this. It was a hectic downdraw the northeaster, and I know a lot of falconers weren't flying that. I don't. I want to fly my birds. Um, and we ended up tracking, but <laughs> I want to fly my birds. And you know, you you do what you enjoy. And some days your bird goes up to a thousand, thousand five hundred, two thousand feet. Some days your bird cuts daisies at hundred and fifty feet. Who cares? You're out there. You're enjoying yourself. Flush the birds. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've we've had this conversation about the long wings, guys. Yeah. It's about the style. Um, you know, for me, we we hunt, and at the end of the day, and it's it's what I what I told the guys 
if I think if I see a drone fly at this meet, I'm not going to be happy. You're at a field meet. <laughs> I don't care if it's raining tomorrow. It's probably going to be raining or snowing. My birds are going to fly and I'm going to put quarry underneath them. That's why we're here. Um, it's not for training flights. It's not for we're at a meet, we hunt. And if my bird comes over 10 meters, you're probably going to think I fly the lowest flying falcons ever. I'm still going to hunt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very well said. And yeah, I mean, as far as, um, you know, just I, you've already kind of touched on a couple stories and stuff, though. But I mean, is there is there one particular thing that you remember, you know, from your history is kind of being sticking out the most is like your most memorable experience or, or flight or particular memory of a bird or? Yeah, I think it's probably my first duck I've ever caught with a falcon. Um, I'd gotten this this falcon, a second-hand peregrine um, rear bird, but she was three or four, when I, four probably when I got her from our, our then club chairman. He called her his pet peregrine. This was in June. I was trying to trap a bird, and I sort of came to the realization if I trap a June passage, it's going to be a freaking nightmare. <laughs> so I decided play with a pet, see what we can do with her, um, and get her going. I, so I worked out a plan of what I was going to do with her, got her into the system, and for all my failings, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of an introvert in that, but I'm, I, I like sharing my experiences and I like sharing falconry. So I had a bunch of guests with me on that, that particular day and we went and we looked at a little pond and there were two ducks on the pond. I didn't even know if my bird was going to stoop ducks. She's never stooped ducks before. Uh, the week before that I flushed ducks underneath them. She came over and she tracked them. She never stooped them before. Tian was with me. He, he just started his apprenticeship. And I put her up and she went out, got a nice height. I think she came over at 120, 130 meters, sent the dogs in, flushed the ducks, and she disappeared with a duck behind the dam wall. <laughs> and Tian was closest, so he ran over the wall, and as he came back, he had this big smile on his face. And she she'd caught her first duck. Um, that's Zora. So Zora, you're going to see fly, and Zora's been flown by a few guys in the club now. She's she's a duck killer. Um, she was my lockdown bird. I got a permit from a friend who did bird abatement that I was doing pest control to carry on flying even when we were, <laughs> when we were in hard lockdown. Um, so she's she she became a duck killer, and I think you know she she taught me about duck hawking and how to do it. Um, she trained my pointer for duck hawking, and he's a He's a bloody good dog with that. Um, he knows exactly what, what to do when we fly ducks. Um, we'll see what he does on partridge. I haven't worked him on partridge in a while, so we'll see the next three, four days what he does on partridge. Um, yeah, so that's that's the one flight. I think the second flight is that little man sitting over there. His first duck, I also, for all my sins, had someone with me, <laughs> one people with me. And I, this, this time it was actually caught up on video. Um, the dam we flew, you put the bird up about 400 meters away from the dam and you walk down. So, and it, it's a dam you have to fly with a dog because if you, otherwise you're going to be, by the time the bird's in position, you're going to have to run through thick mud. It's not fun. Um, so put the bird up and he went out, got nice height and he was coming over at a, also 140, 150 meters. Let the dog go and the dog ran down to the dam. Now my dog does this thing where he, as he's running, he's watching the bird. So if the bird turns away, he stops. 
and I was, I, at, you know, at that point, I always sort of start shouting at the dog to carry on running, and you'll see me wave my hand at the dog to go, and it's only afterwards when I saw the video footage the guy took that I realized, why my dog's stopping? He's stopping because the bird's not in position. He waits for the bird to turn and get over him again before he carries on running. Anyway, he put the ducks up, and he came down, and he grabbed a duck, and he took it halfway down, and I lost sight of them against the dam wall. So I started running through the thick mud to get them. And when I was a bit away, I said, no, but here's my falcon breaking the skyline again, but pumping. And he flew in a yellow-billed duck. Now he's also, he's a 580-gram bird, so not big. Flew in a drake yellow bull for 500 meters, grabbed it and took it down to earth. Um, and I mean, that was, that was the start. Um, so he's... If they start like that, there's, there's promise. <laughs> well, it certainly can't hurt. Yeah, sure. <laughs> no, definitely can't hurt. Well, this has been, like I said, this has been a very enlightening conversation and, and I appreciate you, you know, sharing so many of the, the details and the structure and, and some of the background and, and, um, yeah, and this is the, the 30th anniversary of, of of the club is that correct or is yeah that... it's a it's a 30th anniversary meet it's just two years late um yeah. with with COVID, we couldn't do it in 2020 it's three years late 2021 we couldn't do it in 2021 properly um because of COVID, there were issues um we did a small meet in 2021 but this is our our big 30th meet and i think this is the last big meet i'm organizing for a while <laughs> <laughs> pass the bug off to somebody else now so. next year we'll do a, a a weekend meet up in the 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 um in the overberg go fly graving for a weekend and then you know on all the all the field trial farms and then we're happy <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, like I said, I mean, I, I can't, uh, you know, I can't say thanks enough for the invite to come and, and be a part of this. I'm glad that we were able to, you know, between the two of us do all the things that we needed to do to, to make this work and coordinate it. Of course you did way more work than me, but, uh, well, you, but, you got the, the funding to, for the plane ticket because I, I don't know how we're going to get around that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, um, you know, thanks to the, Thank you to the Falconry Heritage Trust for, you know, agreeing to bestow that upon me as well. And, um, you know, like I said, it's um, it's been really fun so far. And I really look forward to kind of seeing how the the rest of the week is going to progress. And, um, you know, I mean, I know you already kind of gave some words of wisdom earlier, but is there any last kind of note that you'd like to, to end on as far as any last piece of advice that you'd like to leave or, or give for people that are either currently in or wanting to get into the sport? Uh, I think don't reinvent the wheel and keep it simple. I think that's, that's, that's words to live by. I think, um, for, for me at least, I, it's, it's just stick to, to what works. Don't try. The sport is at least 6,000 years old. Um, I think who was it that said we man rode out of the mists of history on the back of the horse with a peregrine on his fist. <laughs> um, stick to what works and and find what works for you. Um, do do what works for you. Don't don't worry if it's catching starlings with a kestrel, if it is catching squirrels with a red tail, if it's catching grass in the Scottish Highlands. 
do what works for you and don't judge others <laughs> <laughs> well you know that's asking an awful lot uh, man. that is asking an awful lot and it's, it's something we sometimes have to ask ourselves as well so oh well well yeah for sure and you know we're definitely not all perfect but um you know <laughs> it's an evolutionary process what yeah. what can i say but um but yeah man thanks again so much and um you know this has been a great talk and uh, i'm looking forward to to many more this week and um unless uh you have any last bits of info or anything that you want to um you know mention or anything we can go ahead and, and call this good yeah. if you want thanks for coming down we're yeah. happy to have you here and thanks for your time yeah well like i said man thank you and uh i'll have one more drink and then i guess uh probably head to bed pretty soon i think so it's early morning tomorrow yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right but thanks again thanks cheers